Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope and our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. Thank you to the worship team. That's uh, one of the things I uh, appreciate about the, the Reformed tradition as a whole and, and the way that we structure our services is that there is this intentionality. We've had this song reminding us of this need for God to speak to us through his word, and now we're going to have a time to open up God's word. Uh, So I invite you to open up your Bibles to James chapter 3. We're going to be starting in verse 13. We're continuing in our series, Undivided. Uh, This is a series through James where we're looking at how James is calling us to undivided living, where it's not divided between the things we think and the things that we do or the things that we believe and how we behave, that there's a unity, there's a wholeness built into that. Uh, One of the things I want to point out is that as I read the scripture, it sometimes has some different wording than what you have in your Bibles. And I just want to note that your Bibles are an, the NIV translation, and I'm just reading the updated version of that, today's NIV, or the TNIV. Uh, so one of the differences that you'll see in there is that every time it says brothers, it will say brothers and sisters uh, in the translation that I'm using. And, and that's because when James is writing this, like it's, it's translating the word adelphoi, which means brothers. Uh, but he's using that to address the whole of the church, both brothers and sisters. So uh, in doing accurate translations, they've done this change, noting that in our culture, in our society, to only say brothers is a gender-exclusive term, and it wouldn't communicate the meaning that James is bringing. In in other places, there'll just be some minor changes just on wording to to update the language to, to meet what... Uh, how we use English in 2022. So with that reminder, let's turn to God's word. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they, don't they come from your desires that, that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You, you covet. You cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives 
that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. Submit yourselves, then, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve. Mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When I think of an example of what it is like uh, to live with wisdom and humility, uh, these two key words that show up in our passage, I often think of a person named Bernard of Clairvaux. Seeing a few blanks, that's expected. I don't expect that anyone's really necessarily heard of him. Uh, but he is a fairly significant person in Christian history. He was born in 1090, so this is 400 years before the Reformation happens. And some of his importance shows up when you have the Reformation actually happening. Uh, you have figures like John Calvin and Martin Luther. They would turn back to people like Bernard of Clairvaux. They would say, well, these are early signs of the Reformation. These are people that were speaking truth in the church in their own context. They were bringing reform in the midst of the hurting church back then. So we have Reformation Sunday coming up next week. I'm not going to be uh, bringing the message, so I thought I'd just bring in my little piece on the Reformation here. Um, while the Reformation happened in the 1500s, we have to remind ourselves that the church didn't suddenly take a nosedive in 1499. The church, surprise, surprise, has always had people abusing power in one way or another, uh, but the bright side of that is that there has always been people within the church seeking for reform, seeking the truth, and doing that in the humility that they were called to. The 12th century was no exception from this. Uh, this was a time, a time that Bernard of Clairvaux was living, uh, where a lot of the monasteries were getting quite wealthy, uh, this, this vow of poverty that the monks took worked quite well. They were being really industrious. They were holding society together in a way, uh, but also building some wealth. And alongside the wealth came people kind of hoarding and trying to accumulate power and their own wealth so that the monasteries became a place that was more corrupt than the places of the, the princes or the people in power elsewhere in society. And this was true not just of their um, letting go of their vow of poverty, but their, also their vow of celibacy. There were, they were by no means pure in that area as well. 
In, in the midst of these communities comes a person named Bernard of Clairvaux who seeks to bring reform, and he advises the people to live in humility, to actually recover what it is to take that vow of poverty and serve the poor, serve those around them. He founded multiple communities that had this remarkable reputation of people that lived in humility. And he had such a reputation that um, other governors would, would look towards him and say, like, okay, what's your secret? Can you just give us, like, the, the five steps to becoming a humble person uh, so that I can pass it around my communities and we can change things? And Bernard actually took that up from someone named Godfrey. as uh, a great name. I don't have enough Godfreys around anymore. Um, and when he tried to write this letter or to write this piece of advice, he found that he couldn't actually do it. To write a tract on humility was a contradiction of terms for him. He could only feel pride seeping in as he wrote about how humble him and his followers were. Which, by the way, um, humility that is self-proclaimed is a dangerous thing. Humility is something that can be observed. I'll have a little bit more to say on that later, but Bernard of Clairvaux, rather than writing 12 Steps Towards Humility, writes something called 12 Steps Towards Pride, because he writes what he knows. And all he knows when he seeks his heart is his movement towards pride and then trying to move away from that. He ends this letter uh, to Godfrey, saying, you may perhaps say, Brother Godfrey, that this describing of the degrees of pride instead of those of humility, I seem to have gone beyond your request and my own tardy promise. It's essentially saying, I haven't been able to do what you've paid me to do. But my answer to this is that I was unable to teach anything but I learned. I don't know humility so much as I know the pride within myself. And I can, I can show you the ways away from that, and hopefully that can draw you close to God who can teach you the way to humility. In several ways, then, I think Bernard of Clairvaux's work fits really well with our passage for today. He longed to see communities live into that wise way of living, that way of humility, the way that resists pride. He longed to see people that show this imitation of God in what they do. So in our passage, we see that link that James makes between humility and wisdom. And then he'll go on to say how humility, um, a lack of humility, leads to all sorts of prideful reactions and responses and outcomes. The proud person is the one who is envious, carries bitter envy, is one who is selfish, who is full of selfish ambition. So we might look to ourselves in the midst of this and ask, are we wise? Are we people growing in wisdom? Because this is what James wants us to be thinking of. And remember who James is, the, the person who's writing this, is James, the brother of Jesus. James, the leader of the church of Jerusalem, one of the pillars of the early church. We're getting an insight to what the, the earliest of Christian teachings is saying. Or 
to go back to James's title as he preferred, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. According to James, if you want to know if someone is wise, you don't simply ask what they know, but you observe how they behave. You, you, you actually look at how they treat other people. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at this passage from James chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. So for James, he brings this emphasis that our faith ought to be something that is seen. It must have an outcome to it. He affirms, of course, that we don't earn our salvation. This isn't something that we earn by doing things. But he also presses the Christian community to say that as saved people, we, we need to have changed lives. If, if we're rescued from destructive living and into wholeness, then those fruits ought to be in what we do. In James, just as faith needs to be lived for it to be alive, wisdom also needs to look a certain way. So the James chapter 3 has this compliment to James 2.18 in the verse, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life. You, you can observe it, you can see it by the things that they do. Just put it in the broader context there. Are you wise? then it should be seen in what you do. And, and the, the wording here is let them show it by their good life. So let them there. That, that wording kind of says like, well, there's that option of showing it in their good life, but that actually doesn't reflect um, how that, that verb's being employed there. Um, looking deeper into the text, there's actually a requirement there who is wise and understanding among you, they must show it in their good life. Wisdom separated from the good life is no wisdom at all, according to James. It is a fake wisdom, as we'll see later on in our passage here. It's wisdom with some quotation marks around it. Now, as we've been looking at wisdom throughout the series, seeing James is considered wisdom literature, we can say that wisdom, true wisdom, begins with the fear of the Lord, which basically means wisdom has to do with faithfulness to God. That's the, the, the biblical definition of wisdom. And, and we came across this understanding of wisdom when we looked at James chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, well, if any of you lack wisdom, we should go to God, the God who gives generously. True wisdom is something that has this divine origin. We ask God for it. We don't just look towards ourselves. And he's revisiting that theme now here, saying that we need this wisdom from above, not some sort of earthly below type wisdom. And there's an important distinction there between those two. We need to remember and also repeat to ourselves that we need this wisdom from above, uh, the fact that we don't earn things here. We aren't earning wisdom, but we receive it from God. 
It has its origin in God. It is a gift from God. And false wisdom, on the other hand, is derived completely apart from God. This is a wisdom that imagines the world existing completely without God's work in it. We think that we can arrive to flourishing in a good life without him. Complete, uh, incomplete isolation to the, the giver of good gifts. In describing wisdom isolated from God, kind of gives three different words there, earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. These are words, three different ways of saying the same thing. It is complete detachment from God when our very definition of wisdom is that it is coming from above and from God. Now, to help kind of explain this, I want to bring in the language of idolatry because I actually find it really helpful in understanding both what James is saying but also what James is not saying here uh, because you can have some dangerous teachings around this in how we engage with what we see as earthly or unspiritual in this context. Idolatry, I think, is helpful yeah, in saying what James is not saying, and here's a, a little visual here that I've prepared. You can tell I drew it because the lines aren't straight. Uh, the upward part of the graph here is representing desire, and we'll, we want to picture here just these different degrees of desire that we have in the world for different things. On the lower parts of the graph, um, it can look different from person to person. We can have different things that characterize our desires. But the big thing, the most important part, is that the highest desire is our desire for God and, and glory towards God. When this is lined up, all the subsequent things, all the things that run down from there, are filtered through that higher desire. Essentially, with God at the origin, with God at the top there, all the other things, whether they represent family or sports, the leisure type things, or whether it's our volunteering, our money, our sexuality, all of these things we experience through this first one. Now, just to explain that a little bit more, if, if I were to take this one, let's call it sports here. When, when I was involved with sports, my athletics then weren't simply an earthly thing. This was a way in which I was enjoying God's creation, where I'm, I'm enjoying something from God. There's that downward motion to it. And there's also an upward motion. It was, it was through sports that I was giving glory up towards God as well. So something that is kind of looked at as earthly in this context or an unspiritual activity is transformed into something spiritual because of what is at the core, what is at the highest point of our desires. But when God is not at the top... Let's say it's worked its way up on the top here, and all I want is kind of to serve myself in there. It becomes a natural or unspiritual activity. It's no longer seen as coming from God. So that, that enjoyment has that more selfish motive to it. 
Now, ultimately, what's happening, if, if any of these colors work their way to the top, and they are ones that are not from God, whether it is our sport or family or work, if we see them as ways, not as ways of bringing glory to God, but in the things that have their ultimate meaning and value in themselves, the biblical testimony to what happens there is that things fall apart. Uh, we, we don't display the rightly ordered self there, and it collapses in all sorts of terrible ways. And, and when we look at this, we want to say that James isn't being anti-world here, even though it can look like that at times. He wants us to enjoy the things of the world in the right order. James isn't saying that things that place us in the world, that our day-to-day -day activities have no value unless we're able to connect them to something spiritual like evangelism. What he is saying is that when we take the day-to-day -day things that we do and we make that our whole lives, when we derive our entire identity and meaning from those things and not from above, then we're in trouble. What James wants us to know is that when we do not have wisdom from above, when we do not look to God as our source for wisdom, it has lost its ultimate end in God and is now an unspiritual end in itself. That's that description here of that earthly wisdom. It's that earthly, unspiritual, even described as demonic. Uh, to show what that looks like actually in our passage here, we can turn to verse 14 where it says, if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition, these, these prideful things within ourselves, we could see division coming up between others. Like, I look at the, that first one of being selfish. When you just see yourself at the top and you kind of want to pile up things to yourself in exclusion to other people, that brings that sense of division. Or if we look at envy, this bitter envy that we can have. If we see someone else that's doing better than us or enjoying something that we think we should enjoy and not them, this would be, in James's terms, a worldly way of looking at things. It's viewing the world detached from God and God's generosity, the generosity that we are meant to show towards others. I'm going to verse 16, it, it unfolds it a little bit more. Here it says that detached from God, so this, this wisdom in quotation marks, wisdom that does not come from God, leads to envy and selfish ambition, and there you find disorder the disordered life, the not rightly ordered life, and every evil practice. And particularly, that aspect of disorder is something we can zero in on. We can notice here that the, the problem, though, isn't, isn't the actions themselves, but the source. Are people having uh, that, that source of wisdom coming from God, or are we relying only on ourselves and our own strength? things. James goes on to look at what wisdom 
from above actually looks like. He, he, he zeroes in on that source, and he says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving and considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, fruit impartial and sincere. I think the, the key thing to point out here is that it is first of all pure. He, he wants to say there, there is something primary here, and this isn't the first time that this idea of purity has shown up in James. Remember this kind of thesis statement for James, this big theme that he finishes in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says that true religion is looking after the widow and the orphan, but it's also unpolluted or unstained by the wor world. That is language of purity. You can see that the pure person is one that is not stained, but also one that works towards kind of a wholeness that isn't divided. Now we can see that the polluted, um, being polluted by the world looks like being selfish and envious. It is lacking mercy and generosity. It's, it's behaving like the divided person, kind of believing or saying we believe one thing in acting another way. And this connection between purity and the double-minded person shows up quite clearly in James chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This, this double-minded person, this divided person, again, um, James actually invents that term. There's, there's no reference towards a double-minded person um, in Greek literature before him. The divided person needs to be purified so that they can be undivided, that they can be whole, our response when we see kind of that division within ourselves is that first part of, of the need for repentance. It's kind of wash your hands, purify your hearts, come before God. Now that's, that part is an extension to this first line in verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. There's this submission that we need to bring rather than this place of pride we bring ourselves before the one who can truly help. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Or at the tail end of our passage here, humble yourselves before God, and he will lift you up. The, the way up, kind of ironically here, is in going down and humbling ourselves before God. Now this, again, is recognizing our need for God and God's action. We, we get another gospel nudge here. We could say, kind of developing this a little bit more, that this needs Jesus' work. It is through Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, it is through his ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit that we can be lifted up. We need God, we need this wisdom from above to be drawn up. Now, where does James get this idea that, that Christians need to be humble? Uh, the, the kind of simple Sunday school answer in this case is the right answer. He gets this from Jesus. And this should be abundantly clear by now that, that James sounds a lot like Jesus. We've been repeating that 
throughout this series, and particularly that James sounds like Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, from, from Matthew 5 to 7. And here we have an example from Matthew 5, verse 5, where Jesus teaches, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But later in Matthew, Jesus is saying even stronger statements about what the meek and humble are. They are not just blessed, but they are imitators of Christ. Look at Matthew 11, verse 29, where he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That, that word gentle there is the same word in Greek for meek, and it's the same word, that, word that's translated as humble. There's this consistency here. James isn't just inviting us to pile up deeds and to do action for action's sake. He is always calling us towards imitation of God. We can make this connection. James wants us to imitate the God who is generous and merciful, the God who acts in ways that are undivided, that are completely consistent to his character. It's not about piling up deeds but growing into that wholeness that we were meant for, that we were created for. Now, this, this word of humility is, is something that I think is worth, worth stressing, um, especially in the church today, especially in the midst of different ideas of what church leadership ought to look like. In our current time, we're seeing a lot of failures amongst church leaders, and there's a lot of commentary around that. And one of the, the strands that I keep seeing on those that are bringing, trying to bring some helpful commentary is that often we have prized the wrong things in our leaders. We, we have treated our churches like businesses and our members like consumers, our pastors like CEOs. We have taken this consumeristic and cultural world-based model for leadership and imported it into our churches in the process. We've often overlooked these qualifications. What does it mean to be Christian? That they, they must, or wisdom, must have humility attached to it. This sometimes can be overlooked in leaders so long as they put people in the pews. James calls us to ensure that when we look for what is wise, we look for humility. And that's why I like people like Bernard of Clairvaux. When he's faced with communities that have these bad reputations, the answer is not finding the most powerful person who can strong-arm these communities into behaving rightly. Instead, we find this monk who is earnestly seeking God, who is looking from this wisdom from above and modeling what it is to live into that humility. Another person that gives some good insight in what it looks like to be humble is a longer quote here from C.S. Lewis. I mean, I read it in its entirety because I think it just gives a great picture of how we can be people that look for humility both in ourselves and for others. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. 
He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Um, by the way, smarmy is a word. It just means insincere. I had to look that one up. Probably, all that you will think about a person who is truly humble, all you will think about them is that they seem cheerful. To be an intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He won't be thinking of himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. It appears C.S. Lewis has read James. Um, he's also read Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, if you don't know this about C.S. Lewis, uh, he taught at Oxford as a scholar of medieval theology and literature. Uh, so it's quite likely that he was familiar with Bernard of Clairvaux's works here. It's amazing what sorts of insights people can find when they look towards the wisdom in the past. Now, we ought to train ourselves to look for wisdom. Uh, a last-minute sort of illustration here um, comes from a walk I recently did down at Will Bend Creek. And we saw some trees that had been gnawed down. And that caused us to kind of stop in our walking and to, and to look around listen, see, well, maybe, maybe there's some beavers that are nearby. Maybe we'll, we'll see something else here. Humility is a similar thing. It's an indicator towards wisdom. When we see someone acting with humility, it should mean that we pause and pay attention. It might not mean that they are wise, but it is an early sign that wisdom might be nearby. Again, James says, if you want to spot wisdom, find people who are humble. So I invite you to keep your eyes open. Look for those who exhibit wisdom, because we have them here in our church. Learn from them. But also, watch out for these things yourself. Watch for pride that might be working within you. Watch for envy or selfish ambition. And when you do see these things, bring them before God. Let's come before God in prayer. Dear Lord, uh, we look at our desires and we see that so often they go off kilter. We see the desires that battle within us and we don't know what to do with them. We know what it is to fight with those we love, to hurt others with our words and actions, and to be hurt by others in their words and actions. We grieve and we mourn when we see the ways that our own lives are divided. And we come before you and we ask for your forgiveness, knowing that in your grace you offer it to us freely. We submit ourselves to you. We come before you as the God who gives generously to those who ask. 
and we ask for wisdom. May the wisdom that comes from above show itself in humility here. Through your Holy Spirit working in us, may we show the fruits of the Spirit. May the Holy Spirit form us in a way that we are peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged in the message and through the work of the Spirit. Once again, if you want to learn more about Living Hope, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca.